I heard somebody once say that God's great works um, have a long gestation period. Uh, He's patient and deliberate in working out his will and plan. And as Western Christians or Western people, we don't sometimes like that, right? We, We expect a quick turnaround, right? Fast food industry began here. We want things quick. Um, What we celebrate in the Advent season, it celebrates the birth of God's promise he made 4,000 years before, right, in Genesis 3. Um, Genesis 3, you know the story, well, 1 and 2, God made everything good. The serpent came into the the garden and deceived Eve and Adam and Eve ate of the fruit and all of creation and all of humanity since then has been under God's curse. But one thing God said to the serpent, the last thing he said to the serpent was, I'm gonna put enmity between your seed and the woman's seed. You're gonna bruise his heel and he's gonna bruise your head. And of course, that's referring to Jesus Christ. 4,000 years later, Jesus comes, right? Luke chapters 1 and 2, the one who had come to crush the head of the serpent, he arrived. That's what Advent means, actually, by the way. It means the arrival. When we celebrate Advent season, we are celebrating the arrival of the Son of God, the arrival of the Messiah. Luke chapters 1 and 2 gives us, I think, probably the most extensive uh, narrative of the events surrounding the birth and the coming of Christ. Matthew gives us a fair amount. Mark gives us nothing. And the book of John, the Gospel of John, uh, doesn't give us anything, any particulars of the narrative of his birth, but it certainly gives us a glorious statement of the nature of Christ as the eternal word of God become flesh. But Luke 1 and 2 gives us a lot of events leading up to the birth of Christ. It gives us the event of the birth, and it gives us some of the events after. Um. And it's remarkable what we see. Throughout the Bible, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but throughout the, and I'm not just talking about the Psalms, because that's obvious, right? But throughout the Bible, songs are really important. Obviously, the biggest book in the Bible is a song book, the Psalter. Uh, but there's other songs, too, that are really significant. Uh, especially songs that are sung after some great victory that God has won for his people. Think of the song of Moses after the people went through the Red Sea. Uh, Or the song of Miriam as well. I mean, both in Exodus 15, Moses sings his song and then Miriam gathers the women and uh, he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and the rider, they've been thrown into the sea. It's a song of victory. Or the song of Deborah, after God delivered his people from their Canaanite oppressors. Well, it's interesting. In Luke chapters 1 and 2, we see four songs of triumph in relation to the coming of Christ into the world. We see Mary's song here we're going to look at today. There's the song of Zechariah. He was filled with the Spirit and prophesied. It's just later in Luke chapter 1. We, of course, the one we all know, is the song of the angels that they sang to the shepherds at the birth of Christ. And then the song of Simeon in Luke chapter 2 when 
he picks up the Christ in his arms and says, this is the consolation of Israel that God told me I would see before I died. Well, today we're going to look at Mary's song, the Magnificat. And the, the word Magnificat, that's what it's referred to, it comes from the first word, or not first word, uh, the word magnify. My soul magnifies the Lord. And um, you might say, but are these songs of triumph? I would say, yes, they are. The coming of Christ into the world was a move by God of conquest, of his kingdom coming. We need to know that. I mean, it was, it was a move of conquest. We sing the song. We didn't today. Maybe next week or the week after. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Right? Earth's king has come in the coming of Christ. And the king's mother, Mary, sings of this great turn of events in her Magnificat. Now, maybe you're familiar with the context. It goes like this. An angel appears to Mary, visits her with news of what God is going to do for her and with her and through her. And as you could imagine, a young girl, she was dumbfounded. She said, how can this be? I'm a virgin. And the angel's response, I'm going to read, uh, I'm going to read a portion of this. Uh, actually, I'm going to read the entire response of the angel, but I'm going to read a bit further um, into this narrative. Listen to what the angel said. The angel said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative, Elizabeth, in her old age, has conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So the angel said, Here's what's going to happen. The Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. The shadow of the Most High is going to overshadow you. The child's going to be holy. And then he, get, he says, Here's another thing to keep in mind. Your cousin who's old and barren, she has a baby in her womb as well. Nothing is impossible with God. So Mary makes her way to visit Elizabeth, and it says she entered the house of Zechariah, Elizabeth's husband, and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. Isn't that amazing? And Elizabeth was filled with the Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud voice, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Mary comes into the house of Elizabeth and says, Elizabeth, it's your cousin Mary. At the sound of her voice, Elizabeth said, the the baby in her womb leaped for joy. Now, 
It's been a while, I can't remember who said this, but I remember hearing somebody draw a connection between uh, King David dancing for joy when the Ark of the Covenant was coming and John the Baptist in the womb of his mother leaping for joy when the Messiah in the womb of Mary entered the place. It's amazing. And Elizabeth says to Mary, why is this granted to me? She's amazed. Why is this granted? What a blessing that the mother of my Lord would come and visit me. The word Lord here is not like Elizabeth saying kind of like a human master or something. She is, now this is under, she's filled with the Spirit. So this is from the Spirit. She knew, right? She's prophesying this is the mother of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And when Mary heard this, she began to praise the Lord. She began to praise him. She said this, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. I mean, this is like, this is what her song is all about. It's a magnifying of the Lord. It's her spirit rejoicing in God, her Savior. And when she says, my soul magnifies and my spirit rejoices, I don't think she's making a distinction between soul and spirit. I don't think she is. I think it's more like a Hebrew form of um, poetry called parallelism, where she's basically saying the same thing in a different way. Okay? My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God who's my Savior. She's saying from deep within, from the deepest part of my being, I am magnifying the Lord and I am rejoicing in him. Now notice, um, for Mary, this is, uh, this is not worship that's merely lip service. Right? She is saying, my soul magnifies the Lord. Guess what, beloved? When our souls magnify the Lord, our lips will too. But it doesn't work the other way around. Right? In fact, Jesus, uh, D- Jesus had a serious charge for the Pharisees when he said to them, you honor God with your lips, but your heart is far from him. Mary says, my soul, deep in my soul, deep within my soul and my spirit, I am magnifying the Lord and I am rejoicing in God, my Savior. Now, I think that the word magnify here is interesting. Um, I got this from John Piper, but it's, I think it's a good insight. He said, there's two ways to magnify something. You can try to magnify something that's super, 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 super tiny with like a magnifying glass or a microscope, right? Magnify it so it's bigger. That's not what Mary's talking about here. God is not tiny, right? He's not like, we're not trying, she's not saying, I'm gonna make God bigger. There's another way to magnify though, and it's by using a telescope and pointing it into outer space and looking through that, the lens of the telescope and it helps to magnify and give you a better perspective on just how glorious and beautiful things are in outer space, right? The moon, the stars, the different galaxies. I think Luke and David are the resident astronomers here. They, they, no, I'm joking. But, um, 
right? It gives you a perspective on how big it is and how beautiful and glorious it is. And I think that's what Mary's saying here. My soul magnifies the Lord. The rest of her song is about magnifying the Lord. Helping us, I mean, helping, I mean, thankfully, this is part of Scripture, so we have the benefit, like, we know this is from the Lord. She's full of the Spirit. She says this. This is for us to get a greater glimpse of who our God is, of who the Lord is, of who this person is that Mary was carrying in her womb. And so my prayer is that by the time we wrap up this morning, through our griefs and joys, you and I would all say like Mary, my soul magnifies the Lord. So why does Mary magnify the Lord? Well, first, because he is a God who looks on the lowly and humble. First, Mary recognizes that she, is, she has a lowly, humble estate. She's nobody important. Um, and she's amazed that the Lord of heaven and earth would look on her with such favor. I wonder if you've ever thought that before. So here's what Mary says. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For, or because, he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. I mean, like all generations since Mary have looked at her. Now, of course, the Roman Catholic Church goes overboard, right? They have this whole you know, pray to Mary and practically worship. We're not talking about that, but we, we do esteem Mary. She has a, a, a really important place in redemptive history, for sure. She says, all generations are gonna call me blessed, and we should. We should look back and say, what a blessed woman, and what a blessing that came through her. But she says, he has looked upon the humble state, the state of his servant. And the ultimate snub you could ever give to someone or that could be given to you is when someone's trying to get your attention to just ignore them, to look away, to not pay any attention to them, right? To walk past without acknowledging or looking at or regarding that person. You ever heard that saying, talk to the hand, right? Like you turn your head away and you say, talk to the hand. Like that's the ultimate snub. I don't have time for you. Talk to the hand. What is the first thing Mary mentions for why she exalts the Lord? Because he looked at her. Because he looked on her humble estate. What an amazing thing. What was Mary's humble estate? I mean, we could all say, well, if we think about ourselves rightly, we, when Christ came to us, we were in a humble estate. We were in great need. That's totally true. But Mary had some peculiar challenges too. Um, she was part of a conquered people, right? She was, I mean, Israel was under Roman occupation, and the Israelites had experienced much judgment from the hand of God for their sin. So she was under, she, she was part of a conquered people. She was, she was part of a, of a town that was very insignificant. Remember when Jesus came on the scene, and well, I can't remember which one, Nathaniel maybe, went to get his brother and said, I think we found the Messiah from Nazareth. The response was, can anything good come from there? Right, she, that, she was from Nazareth, insignificant town. 
she was a young girl. Some think, most think she was probably between the age of 12, I'm sorry, 14 and 16. She could have been 18. She could have been as young as 12. A, a girl could be betrothed at the age of 12 during that time. So she was a young girl. I, mean, I, have, I have daughters that age. We have lots of girls in this church that are between the age of 12 and 18. I mean, imagine being put in that, right? She was probably poor, and I, we don't know exactly you know, her economic condition, but she was certainly not part of the upper crust of society. And to add to all of that, she was an unmarried young girl who was pregnant. Of course, after the angel of the Lord came to her. But, um, and she was pregnant not from her husband. And we know that there was a stigma that, that she and probably the Lord Jesus carried with that. This is a humble estate for sure. But then notice the way that Mary describes herself. She said, he has looked on the humble estate of his beloved daughter of the king? No. He has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Of course, she was a daughter of the king. She is. She referred to herself as a servant. She saw herself as the Lord's servant. She is anything but haughty, given this great privilege and blessing she had been given by God. She doesn't say, look at how God has blessed me, how he's using me, I must be pretty amazing. She says, I am the Lord's servant. He is the master. He can do with me as he pleases. And that's how she responded to the angel, too. I read it just a bit ago, but uh, back in verse 38, Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Like Reed said, many, many uh, great things have been said about Cindy and many more could be said and probably should be. Um, but one of the things Reed said, and I think this quintessentially describes Cindy, she was a servant of Christ. And we all were the beneficiaries of that. She was, a, she was never vying to try to become somebody. She was happy to be a servant of Christ and to serve her husband and her kids and her grandkids and her church and anyone else that came within her sphere of influence. She was a servant. That's what Mary, I'm a servant. He's looked on the humble estate of his servant. Now, um, the English translations that most of, well, that we have, probably that most of us have, somewhat blunt the force of this word. The word really means slave. Mary, the Lord's slave. Now, of course, there was a form of slavery in the Old Testament where a slave, though offered release, could choose willingly and gladly to continue in servitude. And they were called a bond slave. And I think that's what's in view here. Mary saw herself as a glad servant of Christ, of the Lord. This is the ultimate change of fortunes. This young girl in such a humble position is a servant who's been highly esteemed by the Lord of the universe. And for God to look on someone is to 
esteem them. It is to favor them. It is to, to show great blessing. Think of, think of the blessings throughout the Bible. Number, Numbers chapter 6, uh, Psalm 67. The Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine upon you. Right? His countenance. To lift his countenance upon somebody is to, to bless them. This young, humble servant was highly esteemed by the Lord of the universe. And it's the, same way it is, it's the same way today. God still esteems the humble. And it's important for us to recognize that and how we approach God and how we live our lives. We want to be those who are in that place of humility where God esteems the humble. Right? He's opposed to the proud. He gives grace to the humble. He exalts the humble. Isaiah 57, 15 says that God dwells in two places. One place that we, in and of ourselves, we can't go, but the other place we can. Listen to what it says. For thus says the the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I, this is God speaking, I dwell in a high and holy place. It's like, ooh, can I go there? And also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. To revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of the contrite. That's the place you and I can go. That's where Jesus meets us. That's why he came the way he did. I was just reading this morning how Martin Luther said something like, and I'm not going to get this, I should have brought the book so I could have read it, but he said, you know, if Jesus would have come with all the pomp and had been laid in a golden manger, that would be of no help to me. But he was laid in a lowly, wooden, whatever, it was made of, manger. And now I know he is a savior and a God I can draw near to. The song, O Holy Night, has a verse that says this. It says, The King of Kings lay thus in lowly manger. In all our trials, he was born to be our friend. Now, of course, it's hard to know what Mary knew. I mean, we don't, we don't know what all she knew. Right? How much, how much revelation she got. Obviously, we know what she, the angel told her. We know what, right, she sang in this song, but we don't know all that if she all the details she knew about. She certainly knew that some, this person growing in her womb was important, but how much, we don't know for sure. But you and I now know, right? We know who he is. And of course, Mary knew more and more. But you and I know he's the Lord who came to us in our humble, helpless estate. To rescue us. He's the one who is made like us in every way so that he might be the kind of savior and high priest that we need, that sinners need. He's one who's sympathetic in our weakness. He's, he was tempted as every way as we are. He was tempted in every way as we are. He's someone who's sympathetic in our griefs. I love the I love the prophecy of Isaiah 53 where it describes Jesus as the man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. You know why I love that? Because we know sorrow, and we are acquainted with deep grief through this life. 
He was made like us. He's acquainted with that. And yet he's also perfect so that his perfect life and obedience and righteousness could count as ours through faith. He's also God so that he could bear the punishment of our sins that we deserve. He's the perfect mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ. Mary can't do that. Christ alone can. And Mary magnifies the Lord because he esteems the humble. Like Mary, and like all of us who know our need and humbly draw near to him. Mary also magnifies the Lord because she describes the Lord as mighty and holy and merciful. So she goes on to say, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He who is mighty has done great things for me. I have a good friend who often says that to me in my presence. He who is mighty has done great things for me. And sometimes sometime it dawned on me. It's like, wow, I think every Christian who's thinking straight and right ought to be able to say the same thing. The one who is mighty has done great things for us. The one who holds the stars, the entire cosmos in his hands, blessed Mary so tremendously and blesses his people still today. A few years ago, I went through a book uh, with some homeschool kids in the church on the names of God. And there is one of the names that has mighty in it. Anyone? I can't remember who's in that class, but... I won't call him Silas because I know he was in the class. Um, it was the name El Shaddai. El Shaddai. El is God. Shaddai is Almighty. Almighty God. Psalm 91 1. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty, of Shaddai, El Shaddai. God Almighty has done great things for me, Mary says. And of course, we would say he's done great things for us, right? Through the consequences of this person in her womb. And not only that, but for the entire world, for thousands of years, and for many, however many years to come until he comes again. God Almighty had called this young girl to the monumental, glorious task of carrying the Messiah, the King of Kings, and Lord of Lords in her womb. I mean, think about this. God Almighty doing such an enormous and glorious thing in such a strange and unassuming and seemingly weak way. But isn't that what we see throughout the Bible, certainly in the work and ministry of Christ? Martin Luther somewhere described God's, he said God has a right hand of power and a left hand of power. His right hand of power is obvious. He just comes in and whammo, right? Takes people out, whatever. Just His left-handed power is his glorious power disguised or veiled in weakness. A young girl in some insignificant town carrying a baby who happens to be the son of God. The Savior of the world, by the way. <laughs> right? The cross, God's left hand of power, 
apparent defeat, God wins his greatest victory. This is God's left hand of powers, triumph through apparent weakness, even apparent defeat. We sing, hark the herald angels sing, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Then Mary says, and holy is his name. The mighty one is also the holy one. And we think of holy in terms often of just moral purity, right? Uh, a person is holy if they're morally pure and upright. Sometimes we think about it that way. And of course, God is holy, and so he is the ultimate in moral purity. And that's not, that's not wrong. But I think when describing God as holy, it means, and, and quite frankly, describing Christians as holy, I think there's something more fundamental that we need to get to. To be holy for God means that he is set apart. You and I are to be holy. We're to be set apart. But God in his very essence is holy. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. God can't even look on sin. He is holy. Which means for the Holy One to act on Mary's behalf in such a marvelous way, he needs to act in grace, doesn't he? He needs to do something in grace. He needs to work. He needs to act in his grace. For God to act on behalf of sinful humanity as the holy God, he needs to be gracious. Of course, he is. There was a conference, of, uh, I think it was like a comparative religions or something, and a group of experts were talking about these different religions and the uniqueness of Christianity and so forth. And C.S. Lewis walked in and, um, I don't know, walked in, but he, anyways, became part of the conversation. And they asked him, what's, what's unique about Christianity? What sets it apart? And, you know, of course, the best answer would have been, well, it's the only true religion. <laughs> but, but he didn't say that. He said, oh, that's easy. It's grace. What sets Christianity apart is grace, right? Every other religion has some kind of works-based or, you know, uh, will worship or I'm going to do enough to please God, to get God to hear me, to get God to look upon me and so forth. And Christianity is sheer grace. The Holy One who is set apart from sinners and sin condescends in the greatest act of grace by becoming a preborn baby in the womb of Mary for us and our salvation. And we, of course, we see this idea of grace in Mary's song. She says, The mighty one and the holy one is also the merciful one. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation, down to today. His mercy is for those who fear him. Now, that may sound strange. Um, might say, you might think his mercy is for those who um, kind of pay him back. Okay, I'm going to show you mercy because you, you, know, you, you, right, you paid me back or something. But his mercy is for those who fear him, for those who reverence him. There's two ways to fear God. One is to tuck tail and run from him. Maybe there's someone here today that you're doing that. To tuck tail and run from God. You come to church, but truly you're, running from God. There's another way to fear, though, and it is to bow low before him 
in reverence and awe and pay him homage. There's a good kind of filial fear that a child has for their father. Without it, there's, there's no respect and honor for the dad. And we ought, certainly ought to have that for our father. There's another kind of fear that a prisoner has for a torturer. You know, and we don't want that. Mary says God is merciful to those who revere him as a loving, gracious, and holy father. And finally, Mary magnifies the Lord because verse 51 says this, he has shown strength with his arm. I love the imagery here. This is awesome. She says, he has shown strength with his arm. Does anyone know what the Bible means when it talks about the arm of God? It's talking about his mighty power, right? Someone, his mighty power by which he routes his enemies. Mary, this again, young girl pregnant with the Messiah, she's visiting her cousin who, you know, another, in, 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 the, in the world's eyes, another nobody. And she says, because of what God is doing right now, right here, in me and through me, God has shown strength with his arm. The New American Standard translates it this way. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. Now remember, Mary had just said the mighty one had done great things for her, but I think this goes beyond what God has done just for Mary. This reveals the mighty deeds of the Lord in bringing down the arrogant and powerful oppressors of the world. I don't know if you ever wonder this or think this way, but I sometimes do. What difference can we make against such enormous forces of evil in the world? We need the faith of Mary. Here's what she says, right? He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Do you remember when the Magi came to Jerusalem looking for the Messiah, looking for the king of the Jews. You guys remember that story? Okay, probably sometime after Jesus had been born, they come to town, they, they say, where is the king of the Jews? And when Herod heard that, what was his response? Do you guys know what his response was? It says he was troubled, or some translations say he was greatly, he feared greatly, and all Jerusalem with him. And then, of course, he went about trying to find out where he was because he wanted to kill that child who would be king. It was satanic, no doubt. His impulse was to, ch- to, was to kill the child. Jesus Christ upends all the powers of the world. Do you know that? Jesus Christ upends all the powers of the world. Now, I think sometimes we have a worldly perspective on power. We think... Uh, we need, you know, Christians need political power, right? We need the evangelical voting block to vote for the right person. Get them in. Listen, that's great. Politics matter, matters. Voting matters. How we vote matters. But listen to what Mary says. 
How has God shown his arm? He scatters the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Arrogant, proud people of the earth strut around thinking they are the masters of the land. And God simply scatters them. Now, here's the picture that came to my mind. Chessboard. Silas and I were playing chess recently. And so this picture came to mind because we just played not too long ago. Chessboard, all the pieces set up and just in the right spot and just waving the hand across the chessboard and scattering those pieces across the room. That's what our Lord does to the proud. Psalm 2. The, the rulers of the earth, they take their stand against the Lord and against his anointed. And what does God do? How does he respond? He laughs at them. He holds them in derision. And he gives them a warning to kiss the son lest he be angry and they perish in his wrath. Mary says he brings down the mighty from their thrones. Ne- Pharaoh, Nebuchadnezzar, Alexander the Great, Herod, who was king at this time, all the Caesars, all throughout history, all it takes is the fingers of God to pinch the hem of the garment of a ruler and bring him down from his throne. He raises them up, he brings them down. And it's the same in our day. As our society seems to be unraveling and we're kind of in this downward spiral. And this didn't happen overnight, but has anyone noticed just the growing dislike culturally? It probably, I don't think it was this way 50 years ago. I wasn't alive 50 years ago, but even for me growing up, it wasn't this way, but certainly further back. Anyone know the growing dislike? Anyone recognize the growing dislike for Christmas? It's like, just let people have fun, right? I'm, I'm kind of joking, but... Um, and I'm not saying that as Christians we should buy into all the cultural entanglements that come along with this holiday. I'm not saying that at all. But why is there such antagonism to Christmas? And I'm not, ruler, I'm not, uh, human beings may not be thinking this way, but I, I think the demonic forces underneath are. It's because the incarnation was God's D-Day invasion. The incarnation was God's D-Day invasion. He sent his son into the world to conquer. And the powers of darkness are reminded of it. He brings down the mighty from their thrones, the mighty Roman Empire, which was ruling at the time Mary spoke this or sang this song. Where's the Roman Empire now? It's in ruins. You can still go see. Go over to Europe and see the ruins. Yet today, he brings down the mighty. And then what does Mary say? He exalts the humble. Kind of back to that theme. God is opposed to the proud, but he exalts the humble. And this is something we see all throughout the Bible. He fills the hungry with good things. Mary says the rich he sends away empty. And here at the end in verses 54 and 55, we see that God shows strength with his arm in keeping his covenant promise that he made centuries and even millennia before. The promise was that Abraham, excuse me, the promise was to Abraham and his offspring. And the promise made to Abraham was that he would be the father, not just of one nation, 
but that he would be the father of many nations. Listen, that all the families of the earth would be blessed through the offspring of Abraham. Who's that offspring? It's that baby growing in Mary's womb through whom all the families of the earth, through whom all the nations are going to be blessed. God bears his arm in keeping his promise. So we continue to see this redemptive work unfold in history. So that, I said that long gestation period, right, at the beginning. God's great acts have a long gestation period. We're still, still seeing the waiting for the fulfillment of the completion of our salvation that Christ came to accomplish. God exalts the humble. Those who humble themselves under God's mighty arm, under his mighty hand, will be exalted and will have a humble and joyful faith. And that's, what, that's how we enter into the exultant joy of Mary, right? Her Lord is our Lord, right? Her Lord, he who is mighty has done great things for me. My soul magnifies the Lord. Her Lord is our Lord. Hopefully we now see why Mary sang with such deep and exalting joy. Mary most certainly didn't connect all the threads that we see weaved together in the rest of the New Testament and how it connects with the Old Testament and all of that. Which means that you and I actually have even greater reason than Mary. Maybe that's an overstatement. We certainly have every reason she had to magnify the Lord and to rejoice in God our Savior. We see the rest of the story, the coming of Christ, his life, his miracles, his teachings, his death, his resurrection, the ascension, his promised second coming. Amen? And so in the midst of this season, with all of its merriment and all of its celebrations, and with all of its griefs and sorrows, because those exist too in this time, in this season, and not just because of what happened this last week with Cindy, but every see, every year. We, we, well, maybe you don't, but I often think, oh, it's like magical see. But then there's, there's challenges, there's difficulties. There's people that aren't present that were with you in the past. And in the midst of the cultural crisis and upheaval we are living through in our time, may we have the triumphant faith and joy of Mary and say, my soul magnifies the Lord. Amen? Let's pray. Father, grant this to us, I pray. Through the power of your Spirit.